Welcome to Tapping Into Spirit, where we discuss and explore issues related to spirituality in a manner that questions everything. We start from a premise that everything comes from somewhere and work to understand the unexplainable. We always endeavor to have a great time discussing a serious topic with the hopes of offering inspiring thoughts and ideas that allow for growth, evolution, and transformation. We always begin by inviting Spirit to join us in this conversation and guide our words and intentions so that we express things in a manner that is true and inspirational. And we are always thankful and extremely grateful for the opportunity to serve. Greetings and welcome to another wonderful episode of Tapping in the Spirit. I'm your co-host, Dr. Anthony Smith, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Miss Glenda Jones. Hey, Glenda. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm great. Welcome, listeners. We are in for a treat today. We have session two with our um, session that we did uh, several sessions ago with the astrologer, Mr. Samuel Reynolds from Brooklyn, New York. And we're going to get into more of the nuts and bolts of psychology. We had an interesting time just talking about things related to spirit and his whole path of getting into astrology last time. And time went by so fast that we didn't get to a whole bunch of questions that we had and some of you had. So we are back for round two. And so we welcome you back again. Hi, Samuel. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Glenda and Anthony. Um, I think I should say, is it Ramadan Mubarak? You should say that. That's great. Yeah. Ramadan Karim. Thank you. Very good. Um, how's that going for you? Well, it's going okay. Um, well, it's going better than okay. I had a very good session. I mean, like, it is different not to be fasting. I don't fast for health reasons. Um, but it is good to kind of still have the experience. Um, I miss breaking fast with, you know, sisters and brothers, you know, with iftars. Mm -hmm. um, I do have an invite to a possible virtual iftar tonight. Um, so we'll see about that. So it's, that's a bit different from Muslims around the world. But like I said, I had a good session this morning, not just in terms of prayer, but because Ramadan is a commitment to the study of the Quran, to, you know, evaluating and self-evaluating um, and looking at your life, you know, kind of how it functions for the uh, last week of the year for most of, you know, most people in our culture from Christmas to New Year's. Sure. We have 30 days of that kind of reflection. And it does kind of change things when you're fasting. Like I, like I said, I can't do a full fast, but I am still very mindful of what I eat when I eat. Um, so there's a whole level of conscious intention that comes during Ramadan, including just like, you know, the prayers, all these other things. So that's been really, it's been fruitful so far. Because sure, sure. I also cut off, um, most of my social media, meaning like I'm not on Twitter or Facebook during this time, mm -hmm. um, which is not what I do every Ramadan, but this year I decided to take a break from it. So I've been really productive. And that alone is a form of a fast. Right. Yeah. That's why I also saw it as, you know, mm -hmm. so it's been interesting to kind of like, huh, 
Maybe you just need to stay off social media more. Right. So that's right. also been very good. You can get a lot more done, huh? That's true. <laughs> yeah. I like the discipline and the, the self-reflection that comes along with that time. Um, I think it's something that um, we all could benefit from yes. and could find very useful. Yeah. I find a lot of people who are not even Muslim observe Ramadan in some sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the things that most surprised me when I became a Muslim was, you know, encountering people who seem to, you know, even fast. Like the first time I fasted was there was a, a friend of mine who fasted along with me, you know, like I, we were both kind of, I'm glad she did it because we were both kind of nervous. I was like, oh, I don't know how to, how to do this. And there is a way to, to do it. I mean, if anyone is fasting who's listening during Ramadan, what I will say to you is, um, it is the idea of fasting is not starving yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's just more so um, directing yourself toward conscious intention of and conscious attention mm-hmm. to the one, to Allah, to whatever you want to acknowledge sure. during that time. So the answer, this is where I made my mistake, the first Ramadan was I started to overeat after not being able to eat for 17 hours or 18 hours, which is not the move. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is to kind of like, you know, learn limits and to keep those limits. Cause I would stay up all night after that first year, stay up all night uh, after not fast, you know, after fasting and then eating <laughs> for the time we could eat. Right. And then till we stop, that's not the way to do it. Absolutely. Good, good. Okay. All right. So we're going to dive into this here. And so let's, let's start with some terminology, right? Because astrologers have a certain lingo that, 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 that's used. And uh, it's, in the, it's in the culture as well. People throw these terms around. But I don't know that we necessarily know fully what it is we're saying when we hear people throw terminology. It's like as a psychologist, I hear people using Oh, she's just bipolar. I hear people use that terminology all the time. And Split personality. Using, right. They're using it incorrectly, but it's just part of the dial the, the dialect of what our uh, schizophrenic. There she's a schizophrenic. Right, right. Same same thing. So for instance, there's um um Saturn return, there's uh Mercury is in retrograde. People throw those things out and um so why, why don't you dive into and tell us a little bit about what those what that terminology means, along with some of the other um, term, uh, astrological terminology, sun sign, moon sign, ascendant, um, planets, and all, all that. Break it down for us. So you, is that the whole hour then? <laughs> um, so let's start off with some of the common ones. Okay. And on some level, I'll just say this first, that I'm um, very happy that some of this is into the culture because that means then it gives some measure of a starting point, newer starting points for astrologers to talk about, you know, astrology. One of the things I often say is that, you know, people often know their sun signs, but I always say that that is like being in the lobby of a very large building, very tall building. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we're going into, other levels to say Saturn return or Mercury retrograde. So what is a Saturn return, for example? Saturn is the planet that was once envisioned by more ancient astrologers as the farthest planet out from Earth. 
which at one particular point was seen as the center of the cosmos. And still, um, astrologers observe a geocentric point of view, even though we know we live in a heliocentric uh, galaxy, or I should say solar system. So we're, we're not deluded. <laughs> we know how the world works, but Saturn was perceived as the outer rim of that. And by virtue of being at the outer rim, he was seen as the slowest moving planet. So he takes 28 and a half to 30 years to complete his journey through all 12 signs of the Zodiac to come back to his original position or wherever that was. Like if you were born with Saturn and Aquarius, then right now you would be coming toward a Saturn return. So roughly at 28 and a half to 30, you're going to have what we call a Saturn return. Or again, at 50, Eight to 60 is usually the second Saturn return. And then 88 to 90, roughly around that time, is your third Saturn return. I don't know anyone who had their fourth Saturn return, right? Mm -hmm. So um, those are the, the, the moment that happens. When Saturn returns, it is a time of really kind of a check-in. Um, I would say a sense of reckoning, although that's a very severe word or that word freaks people out like, oh, who's coming to judge me? Is it like the second coming or whatever? And it's, it's more so, I, I perceive going back to some other cosmology that's related to our African heritage, I think Saturn is balancing our heart against a feather mm -hmm. and to see if our heart is as light as a feather. Um, which is my eye. Which is my eye, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, are, are you experiencing the equanimity of your life? And Saturn is said to be exalted in Libra. So it's really, that's where like the image crystallized for me is this idea that Saturn, even though he's seen as often the heaviest planet, it's really a heavy counterbalance to lighten ourselves. Saturn also deals with how we accept the roles that we have to take in life. Um, so it may be at your first Saturn turn that you kind of come to understand or even take or assume the mantle of the role that you have in your environment, in your life. The other thing I'll say is that Saturn, <clears throat> the, Saturn the first Saturn return is a return on investment. So it's a community kind of saying, we've been investing in you for some 28, 29, 30 years. Um, how do we begin to see our return on investment? And the return on an investment comes from the dividends of experience that you're now going to develop as you go toward your second Saturn return, roughly around 58 to 60, so that now you're contributing to the culture, right? So it's over those 30 years from 30 years old to 60 that you are on an arc of contribution. And before that, you're on an arc of investment from your community, making you. Okay. So that's the nature of the Saturn return. I can elaborate more on that, but I wanted to just touch on that. I mean, the Mercury. Why do they say that it's when a person is between uh, that, that 28 to 33, that things become tumultuous? Because then if your light, your heart isn't as light as a feather, it's kind of Saturn coming like, oh, you don't need this. Or you going like, yeah, I don't need that. So it can be like, well, I don't know if I need this job, right? I married a 21. I don't know if I'm married to the right person, mm -hmm. right? It can be all these particular things, all the shoulds, because the 20s I construct as the decade of your shoulds. 
So it's more so at the, the end of your 20s where Saturn comes around and is like, which shoulds belong to you? Which are your shoulds? Mm-hmm. So at that particular moment, you start unloading the shoulds that don't really belong to you. Okay. Whether by your own design or life kind of like presents you with those that you either have to kind of accept and work with or make your own, you know, like losing your job or whatever. Okay. Um, Mercury retrograde. First, let me say this. This is a common mistake. People say Mercury in retrograde. Mercury's not a car. He doesn't have drives. He doesn't go into park, right? So he's Mercury retrograde. Okay. Or Mercury retrogrades. Meaning that Mercury appears to go backwards from the Earth's position. Literally, Mercury is not retrograding. What is happening is that Mercury, Mercury's year is only about 88 days long because he's closer to the sun. And so by virtue of his proximity, he can have a, a quicker orbit around the sun. So what happens is that he's completing his orbit after 88 days and he's going toward his new year. Like if we were on Mercury, he'd be like, you know, happy new year, blah, blah, blah. And so Earth, we're still in that old sign, right, from Mercury's perspective. So as he's taking time to catch back up, right, to get where we are after 21 days, because that's how long it takes him to get to like where we were to kind of kind of, you know, get to that point, then we're back on parity in terms of, you know, his completion of his retrograde. So it's more like if you ever, you know, on the outer rim, you know, like on a highway and you're passing a vehicle and it, it's now going behind you, that car is appearing to go retrograde, but it may be going just at the same regular speed. You're going faster. Well, it's not so much that the Earth is going faster as much as Mercury appears to kind of recede, but it's kind of now, you know, done its lap and now it's coming um, back toward us. Okay. And then eventually will speed pass because Mercury, like I said, moves faster. Okay. And so what are the manifestations of that for us when that happens? And so the other thing to kind of think about with that is that Mercury is going toward a renewal. And Mercury deals with three areas of life, which I call the comms. He deals with commerce, communication, and commuting. Mm -hmm. So as he's going toward a renewal, he's going to position us to also have to deal with how we do commerce, how we commute, and how we communicate. So people freak out about Mercury retrograde because it can be, there can be disruptions related to those three areas. And so if you're not willing to be adaptive, if you're not willing to kind of go through a renewal or a revisitation or all the rewords, reworking of any of those things, you will suffer during the Mercury retrograde. So for instance, in relationships, this is a common issue. If you are always texting your partner at a Mercury retrograde, and then like you realize like you text something and you know you get some back you know a message from your partner like well f you then why where did that all that come from blah blah you might need to get on the phone or find a different way to communicate to communicate more in person rather than just relying on text but as i said many people don't want to adapt and so what happens it's like mercury retrograde 
oh, it's just crazy. It's not just Mercury retrograde. It's you. Mm. Yeah. So we need to take responsibility for what is for the energy that's happening around us and Correct. not claim what's happening on the energy because we can always make a choice right. how we're going to respond to that energy. That's right. It's all information. It's information and it's how we use it. Right. It's kind of time to revisit. So for instance, if you're used to going to the airport, you know, just 45 minutes before, you know, like, okay, well, I don't need to stress myself out because I have like, you know, my, um, you know, that hookup in terms of like whatever the travel, you can travel easy, easy, what? Free check. Free check. Right. You know, so you have all that or you, yeah, you have TSA pre-check, right? You have all that, right? Well, the problem can be that you may have some disruptions related to your actual travel. Train is running slower, um, car jam or whatever. So you would make more allowance in terms of your travel. As an example, again, all things related to what Mercury does. Mercury in that sense has a parallel to Enigma, right? In terms of being the Lord of the crossroads, dealing with roads and the means by which things happen. So Mercury is all the ways in which A connects to B. So he's kind of reminding us, don't take me for granted and don't take the ways in which you connect for granted. Mm, Okay. Mm, Very good. So that's kind of how I would define more the Mercury retrograde. Um, Then there's the solar return, which means just a fancy way of saying your sun comes back to its original position as it was when you were born. So that may vary by a day or so because the sun um, may move at a different rate or it may be because of some other things like this is a leap year. So there's an extra day. Mm -hmm. So it may be that, you know, some people are having their solar returns a day before, you know, or hours before. Uh, so this is confusing for people because they think, oh, then the sun is to be in the same position as it is every year. It isn't true, right? And it's going to be a different kind of composite. It can be off by a few hours. It's going to be roughly around that time frame. Like if you're born December 24th, your solar return is likely not going to be December 21st or 22nd. It's going to be the 23rd, maybe the 24th, or maybe the 25th. And it may be the 25th at like 12.51 a.m., which is f- still fairly close to the 24th, mm-hmm. you know, as an example. Okay. So that's solar return. What else has kind of reached? Oh, supermoon. Supermoon was a phrase that was coined by an astrologer, Richard Knoll. And it was an idea where the sun, I'm sorry, where the moon reaches its apogee, which seems to be closest to the earth. And so it seems to loom larger than life. And so it's a full moon. Usually that seems to kind of have like even the largest because it seems closer to the earth, mm-hmm. which is not every full moon. Right. right. So that's, and so that's supposed to have greater influence, especially on terrestrial matters, specifically um, weather issues, whether it's terms of like, magnitudes related to earthquakes um, or other kind of terrestrial phenomena, weather issues and things like that. But people have also kind of come to make that mean more so related to their personal lives. Now, my general take on lunations, new or full moons, is that it really depends on your chart, which is why it's important to know your own astrological chart. Mm -hmm. So it may be, so for instance, an eclipse that's happening, um, 
on July 5th, which is 13, a lunar uh, eclipse, 15, 13 Capricorn. If you have something roughly at 13 Capricorn, that's going to be an important moment for you or something at 13 Cancer. That's an important moment for the United States because if we're talking about July 5th, the sun is in Cancer, roughly 12 degrees of Cancer. So that's going to be an important moment for the United States. So in terms of relation, because we do have like a birth chart or birth, you know, statement for the United States for July 4th, 1776. Interesting. So it does depend on, you know, the points that are activated. Some people kind of like, you know, this is something that is kind of weary and tiring, you know, for people in the astrological crowd. You know, we seem to kind of say every new or full moon, there's a shift in our consciousness. <laughs> and now we're elevating and going and rising up more so, it's more so in our understanding. And I'm like, that was true the last new moon too. <laughs> And these fools still seem crazy. So what's the shift? Yeah. You know, I think it's a lot more particular. Right. right. I'm kind of interested, like in the last podcast, you talked about um, being at a conference and the facilitator mentioned the history of astrology. Yeah. And mentioned the Moors. Yeah. I am really interested in knowing, and I'm sure our listeners are, a little more about that history. Yeah, so I haven't heard that since, right? <laughs> so just to put it in context, I mean, like, what is acknowledged generally, especially in this moment, because what has happened is that there is a vision of astrology that's come back from more its roots, from you know, its earliest times is re relevant to Hellenistic astrology developed mainly in Alexandria, Egypt, mm -hmm. right? So as it comes from Alexandria, Egypt, and then the resuscitation of that after the loss of the Roman Empire, um, which Europeans call the Dark Ages. So pretty much from, you know, the 5th century AD until, like I would say, pretty much the 14th century AD, Europe was in darkness, but the rest of the world was not in darkness, right? So who was not? A large part of the Islamic world and what we now call Moors. So that takes us all the way around the Fertile Crescent, all the way down into Timbuktu, right? Which once had one of the largest libraries and universities in the world. And so there was an assemblage of knowledge and sharing of, you know, traditional texts. And it was also a different Islam. You know, it was an Islam that at that particular point um, that was willing to look at all, all particular scholarship related to the learning and understanding of nature as a way, in a way of reflecting on the law. And so there was like interest in the stars, it was interest in optics, it was an interest in like, you know, looking at even what became like the study of the, the scientific method, you know, as developed by someone named Al-Hazen, mm -hmm. you know. So there was this intermingling of knowledge from as far as like I mentioned, Timbuktu all the way to Baghdad, you know, in terms of the cross-fertilization of knowledge and translating these ancient text from Greek and Latin, which also that many of these scholars would come to learn. And so what became the basis for that Renaissance, right, 
was really the reclamation of Greek and Latin texts that Arabs first or Moors first translated and then got into the hands of Europeans, mm. starting with the de Medici's who commissioned for the translation of these texts using a particular astrologer and scholar called Marsilio Ficino. So Marsilio Ficino is probably the, the first scholar who contributed to translating these texts. But what was um, the, the actual preservation of these texts in what later became European culture came from the Moors. And I want to make an important distinction that some of the more careful scholars would make. Even though um, Europeans came to claim Greek and Roman literature as European or Western, that wasn't their claim for themselves. We must never forget that Greeks and Romans considered everything North and West as barbar or barbarian, right? Worthy of conquest and conquering. And that was it for the glory of Rome. So what's interesting is that we now talk about the centrality of Greek and Roman culture as like, oh, the bare rock of Western culture, but that was an appropriation, right? They didn't necessarily see themselves that way. Right. That's a tangent, but I think relevant related to like, also perhaps even how early Muslim Moor scholars saw it. And when I say more, I do want to be clear, there wasn't this careful divide in relation to the scholarship um, between like, oh, well, you know, there was some of this, but not as much, even though Baghdad was a center of learning until 1258 when it was sacked by the, um, by the Huns, um, by the Mongols. Um, for the most part, even down into North Africa, because we were seen as part of a Muslim Islamic culture, there was this cross-fertilization, which is why we had libraries and preserved texts all the way down into Timbuktu. Okay. Hmm. So it was kind of like this, this cross-meaning and learning and exchange all around what we now call the Fertile Crescent and the Mediterranean Basin, okay. and even down farther. It's even as far, like I mentioned Timbuktu, but even going as far west um, into N Nigeria and other places. You know, one thing that's interesting, they touched on it, or I shouldn't say they, but Alex Haley, for instance, touched on it in Roots. You know, there was Islamic culture in his culture, you know, in terms of as far as Nigeria, right? So, and also Niger he was a Nigerian, but all the way to Gambia, right? So mm -hmm. all to the perimeter, the, the nearly the, you know, the basin of West Africa. So anyway, that's kind of like, you know, in terms of the Moors. But like I said, that's not talked about as much at conferences. It's more like Arab influence. No one says more um, as much. There's even something called the Arabic lots or the Arabic parts, which were the Greek lots, but the people who brought back the parts, or as I say, the lots that the, the Hellenes used were Moors, who spoke Arabic, but don't necessarily have to be Arabic. That's an important distinction too. You know, I mentioned some people who were as far north or far south as, you know, west in Africa, but if we go to like, you know, past Baghdad into Persia, 
you can't call Persians Arabs. They're not Arabs. Right. Hmm. Okay. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, like this surface level of uh, information that I have on astrology is kind of interesting that I get bits and pieces of information. There's something that I heard maybe a couple of years ago about a 13th zodiac sign. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit on that? Cause that's interesting to me. Like where, why is, why is it interesting? I just want, I'm just curious. Because I mean, I've always known it to be 12. Where did we find the 13th? There's no 13th sign. Where did it come from? There's no 13th sign. Okay. But I'll tell you why there's no 13th sign. I'll tell you why that there's said to be a 13th sign. So there are actually three zodiacs. There is the constellational zodiac, the actual constellations that we reference that form what we could say, you know, just for the sake of, you know, convenience, the imaginary band around the earth that go along, that goes along eight degrees above and eight degrees below an imaginary sense of the orbit of the sun around the earth. Now we know the sun does not literally orbit around the earth, but the idea is that the sun forms a, a motion and that there are these stars and band of stars that are along this motion, which we call the constellations, which go from Aries to Pisces. So this constellation, um, the thing to know about them, they're not evenly sized. So some can be huge, like Virgo or Pisces, and some can be really tiny, like Capricorn, or even um, Aries, relatively. So what that means is that if we were going to go literally by the sun going through these particular signs or through these particular constellations, Virgo might be 40 days or 45 days, and then it might take eight days to get through Scorpio, or it might take only 17 days to get through Aries, which nobody did. Now, (laughs) so... When we take that into account, we actually now have, and we have had for 2,000 years, one particular sign that's encroaching on that called Ophiuchus, or Ophiuchus, you know, it's pronounced different ways. I like to say Ophiuchus. So Ophiuchus has been slowly, because it's between Sagittarius and Scorpio, has been coming up on that particular you know, ecliptic, which is that imaginary orbit of the sun around the earth. So as it's been kind of moving in, that has been called the 13th sign, mainly by astronomers. Astronomers do it because two reasons. One, they're just looking at the actual idea of the constellations as just constellations, as nothing more. The other reason why they do it, they like the clown astrologers. Okay. Mm. Because they don't like us. Why don't they like us? Because, well, I think it comes to the, from the petty to more the philosophical. The petty is like, they don't like that when they go to parties and they say, like, I'm an astronomer. Oh, tell me about my sign. Oh. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, no, I'm an, I'm, I'm an astronomer. I study the stars. Mm. Right? And then I think the more sophisticated reason philosophically is like, I don't, I don't understand how you assign meaning to these constellations based on what, what kind of physical apparatus and phenomena. Mm-hmm. 
which can be a fair question, but that's often their issue because they look at things just purely on physical, empirical means. The other two zodiacs is the sidereal and then the tropical. The sidereal is an attempt to align more with the constellations, but even then, that doesn't exactly match the constellations. Why? Because in sidereal astrology, whether we're talking about it from the West or whether we're talking about it from India, all the, all the signs, because there's a difference, I'll call the two zodiacs signs and the other one's constellations, right? All the signs in that zodiac, in the sidereal zodiac, are going to be 30 degrees each. Remember, I told you constellations are not exactly 30 degrees. So to create the uniformity of 360 degrees for a circle, they make them constrained a certain way. So they use a different fixed point for the start of their zodiac, which is related to the actual star. So they use the sidereal zodiac. And so it's like fixed on most, like the Indian astrologers, they fix their star at what we call spica, which is 23 degrees Libra tropically. So that's the star that they use. And it's actually in the constellation of, of Virgo, but they fix that point as 23 degrees, or I should say zero degrees Libra, which they use conversely is also the point for zero degrees Aries. So that becomes the start of the zodiac and the whole band for all the signs in between. The other zodiac, which most people know, especially in the West, is the tropical zodiac. And that's arranged by the sun's shifts going from between the equator to the Tropic of Cancer, and then to the equator and all the way down to the Tropic of Capricorn, which you probably remember from school. So it's using the turning points of the sun in relation to the earth. So that's the difference between the three zodiacs. There's always the question, which one is the most accurate? My opinion is that it depends on what speaks to you in relation to your chart and understanding. You can get a sidereal breakdown and be like, yo, that makes so much sense that I'm a Libra instead of a Scorpio because blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. That's cool. That's a worldview. You might look at your tropical zodiac and be like, that makes a lot of sense and I connect with. Now, some people are like, oh, well, sidereal must be the truth because, you know, people go from tropical to sidereal. Well, we haven't lived in a world where there's been more people who've been sidereal. So there may be people who may go from sidereal to tropical. So that's the other issue. So that's kind of the, you know, sidereal is enjoying right now a resurgence. Um, and there's always this issue or this moment where people say like, well, that's the true zodiac. That's the zodiac that the Egyptians used or the Babylonians used. There's a problem I have with that argument. The problem I have with that argument is that at the time that we had the Egyptians and the Babylonians using a zodiac, there was no difference between the tropical and sidereal zodiac. Now you're like, well, why was that? They were more aligned. And this happens, you know, because every 26,000 years, right, there's kind of a reconciliation. And so at that particular point, at the point that we're using these constellations in relation to what we developed as a zodiac, there really was no difference. So what happens is that roughly around the first century, second century AD, um, Greek astrologers 
insist more on using the tropical zodiac and venturing more away from the sidereal. Now, again, you might argue, well, the sidereal should be the true one. The reason why I think there's this kind of divide is that the Babylonians, who we credit mostly, when I say we, meaning many Western astrologers, I'll come back to that. Um, the Babylonians, in terms of using a particular sense of the zodiac, they paid attention to the actual stars in relation also to the turns of the sun, meaning going toward the seasons or through the seasons. That's an important thing because they were using both. Now, as the seasons got more distant from the stars, then you had a dissonance, which is something that later others discover. So there's one camp that kind of sticks to the stars. There's another camp that sticks to the seasons and the turnings of the sun. Both are correct in a sense because at one point it didn't matter. So that's kind of the confusion. So some people say, especially those who are um, either from the Metanetra tradition or those are more allegiance to Egypt, they will say like, well, we should use the sidereal zodiac. I am not saying they are wrong, but I'm also not saying that they're more right. They're just using a different aspect of something that once was one. Okay. There was no turn. Yeah. So I was today years old when I found out that it's pronounced sidereal. I've been reading it as side reel. (laughs) And I did that. I remember I used to read the comics as a kid, Charlie Mm -hmm. Brown. And every so often he would have Charlie Brown sighing. And I would just read it as sigh. And I was in college before I figured out that it was, ah. <laughs> <laughs> All those years I had been reading it as sigh. I understand. <laughs> so that's rather funny. I'm listening to, to you talk about, I got hung up on these numbers. So 26,000, mm-hmm. right? And so. Or 21,006, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's 26,000, we're going, yeah. So if I divide that by two, I get 13. Okay. So is it 2,000 years? That is an age of a... 2,160 years. 2,160. So the 160 is going to make it 26. Times, yeah, times 12. Okay, okay. So that that takes... Okay, we'll check that just to be sure. But I'm thinking my memory is set. But no, I like to always kind of be exact. But... um, yeah, I, but that's kind of the, the logic behind it. But what, what are you asking? No, I'm just making sure that takes away the... It's 25,920. Okay. All right. Good, good, good. So that's, so that's kind of the idea. And, and the, uh, the thing to understand about the positions of the, the quote-unquote fixed stars, like Spike I mentioned, is that they change through the tropical zodiac one degree every 72 years. If we're using the sidereal zodiac they kind of maintain their same level of degree markers. So for instance, the heart of the, of the heart of the lion, which is called Regulus, is still the heart of the lion, right? It's still roughly um, close to, at that particular point, you know, like six, six degrees of, of Leo. Mm-hmm. 
mm -hmm. um, in the sidereal zodiac. I mentioned that spica in the tropical zodiac is 23, 24 degrees of Libra, whereas in the sidereal zodiac, it's zero degrees of Libra, mm -hmm. right? And that's been true for, you know, you know, a long time. But in the, in the tropical zodiac, it changes every 72 years. So this is kind of the argument that people make against um, tropical astrology. It's like, oh, you guys, you know, you're not in direct alignment to the stars, which is true. It's not. But it also, the counterpoint is that was the zodiac used only in direct alignment with the stars? No, because we have records from the Babylonians that, they also related to the stars in relation to the seasons. Okay. Okay. Good, good. Um, all right. So I want to move into one of our listeners sent in a question. So um, she wanted to know your take on the lunar cycle and how it links with the female womb. So this is... I'm going to go even a step farther in terms of her question. And I'm going to start off with the moon and then end up on Saturn. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, because there's a, there's a Kabbalistic link between the two. Mm. So one of the things that astrology deals with is, you know, the idea of involution and evolution, interiority and exteriority. And the process of manifestation, money, right? Um, materialization, and maybe that's even a better word to use, materialization. All aspects of materialization comes through the moon, right? Mm -hmm. And when I say comes through the moon, it's very reflective in terms of how we talk about, especially traditional astrology, meaning the astrology pretty much up until the 17th century. And the idea is that we go from Saturn, and I can list it, you know, what we call Chaldean order, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun at the center, right? And then we imagine what well, it would be Earth, but then we would go to Venus, Mercury. Um, did I mention Mars? I think I did. Mm -hmm. um, Mercury and then the moon as the fastest moving body, but also the body closest to earth as almost like the pin tip as a stylus with the heavens writing upon us. Right mm -hmm. now it's interesting to use the word materialization because it has the word matter in it. Right. Which also has a linkage to the word that we use like alma mater as mother. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So the moon also symbolizes the mother. So it symbolizes the vehicle by which we have materialization. And by virtue of being that particular idea, you know, roughly having a cycle, a synodic cycle of roughly 28 days um, that we use, that 27 and a half or 28 days that becomes like the ways in which we deal with a cycle of manifestation or materialization. So a woman as being the single vehicle materialization for all human beings, at least as we have it right now on our planet, 
um, as being the single vehicle of manifestation and materialization is directly both symbolically and literally to the moon, both in terms of her cycles. Now you might ask, what's that got to do with Saturn? Well, Saturn is like the bigger idea and cycle of materialization on a social or grander scale. You might notice I said that the moon operates roughly 28 and a half, 27, all the way to possibly 29 to a synodic cycle of days. But you might also remember when I said about the Saturn return, it correlates to the number of years for Saturn. So Saturn is dealing with the grander idea of materialization and Kabbalistically, Saturn is seen as feminine. So there's a link between Saturn and the moon, both in the sense as being vehicles of manifestation at different dimensions of time. So a woman, by virtue of dealing with her cycle, um, specifically in terms of her menstrual cycle, is kind of more in the sense of alignment with the direct principle of manifestation and materialization, which is the ways by which we have birth on our planet. Right, right. So I think that's what she was looking at, but it relates to different layers of, of how we have cycles. So when someone, um, you know, we, people are very fond right now of doing things like at the new moon and full moon, you know, like rituals, which by the way, I'm just going to say is a tangent, but related. Don't do Jack near eclipses. Just stop that. Like in June, June 5th, July 5th or June 21st, July 5th, you know, the new full moons, don't do anything on eclipses. I'll get back to why, but you know, this idea of new and full moons, new mooning where you're setting the intention and then the full moon and flowering of the intention um, is something that's fine. You want to charge your crystals, you know, you want to kind of like activate, you know, like charge your crystals or you want to manifest intention, do something on your vision board. That's all cool. But when you're talking about eclipses, you're dealing with an extra charge of energy because it's actually where the sun and the moon are dealing with an alignment with something called the nodes, which are the lunar nodes, but they're the intersection points of the moon's orbit with the earth's orbit at the sun or around the sun. Mm -hmm. That intersection point is highly, is highly charged. And the reason on some level why we have eclipses, because we're talking about intersections along the ecliptic, right? And ecliptic is the source by which we have eclipses. Mm -hmm. And we have like the shortage of energy or the surge of energy, um, depending on what, you know, node is activated at that particular moment, you know, at an eclipse. So when you are charging, I liken it, you know, at a, an eclipse, I liken it to like, okay, you want to get electricity? Then you use a plug, right? You plug it in with a wire and you kind of make sure it's grounded, all these different things. What you wouldn't do, you know, if you want to charge, you know, let's say I wanted to turn on my light, you wouldn't like, well, let me plug in this butter knife and touch it. You, you won't get to touch it. <laughs> You'd be dead. Right. that's what you're doing when you're kind of charging with that level of energy into like crystals and intentions. It's too much energy. So you can do it a day after, you know, or when it gets into the next sign and you're still within the range of the new or full moon. Okay. That's another thing that people kind of like are not aware of. 
Um, and so the and so the moon also is kind of instrumental in terms of elections, like when you're electing to do something to start a particular moment, um, like marriage or a relationship or a date. Um, it also can be when you're doing uh, magic, like one of the principles of magic, and I'm talking about magic, if you want to put it there with a K, um, is kind of timing it with what we call planetary hours and then also with the moon. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having the moon at a particular time. So if you want to, for instance, cut your hair um, and you want it to kind of still be thick and keep body, then you might do it between a new and full moon, right? Because you're dealing with analogous of the energy of the moon. Now, if you want to cut your hair and thin it out and feel like it's losing more in terms of like some measure of body or for whatever reason you want to have it with less body, then it, you would do it during a full to new moon when it's waning, which is more analogous to that energy, right? Then it's a matter of what sign the moon is in because the moon, like, and this is true for all planets, some of them have more potency, more authority, more sense of themselves in some signs than others. The moon thrives when she's in Taurus or at home in Cancer, which she's going to be in soon. So it might be more auspicious related to that. I could go on. There's all these different associations like, you know, you want to ideally get married during a new to full moon. Why? Because you want to have the waxing experience of bonding, not during like a, a waning moon where things are kind of falling, you know, energy is waning apart. I can, I, I've heard that many times being in the beauty industry about when you should cut hair and it was exactly what you said. I learned that. I don't even remember before I was even in the industry. It was what I felt was um, folklore or was passed down um, through the years. But that makes a lot of sense as to why mm -hmm. I do that. I also, when we talk about the moon, um, in my lay mind, I understand that the moon controls the tides. It's true. Human body is water, 70, 80% water we have to be affected by the moon in some way if we are largely water. That's true. And so I guess for me that that has heightened my interest in, in astrology, but just I don't have enough information to put it all together. So I thank you for, because some of what you're saying helps me to understand why I feel what I feel. Some no, of the intuitive of what I feel. And I'm glad. That's the benefit of my skeptical mind, right? Because it's like, well, why? Because that goes into something else I want to say related to that. I mean, I def definitely think between the sun and the moon with the lights that there is a physical application that relates to them. We astrologers can get into trouble with modern scientists, right? Because modern scientists they live and die on the principle that they are in search of the actual mechanisms by which things work. It's when we start justifying the use of the planets on the physical level with Mercury, Venus, um, you know, the other planets, especially outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, where we may get into trouble because the physical mechanisms may not be the same. So we can't appeal to gravity or electromagnetic flux because we, we can't measure those in ways that seem to concretize the idea of their influence in particular behaviors. Mm -hmm. We can do that with the moon. We can do that with the sun. 
You can't do that with the other planets, which is not to dispense for me or dispel astrology. But what it does point to is I think that there's both a physical element to some parts of astrology and a spiritual element to astrology, Mm -hmm. which we can't lose sight of. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's where astrologers run into trouble when they debate with skeptics or scientists where they kind of say like, well, then this must be true with the moon, which is true. And then they kind of then extrapolate that to like talking about it for Saturn or Pluto, which I'm like, good luck with that. Because there's no physical science that we have currently that would substantiate what you're saying. That's kind of the, the challenge. What does substantiate it is more the experiential, the spiritual, and then even like the mythical and mathematical elements of it. So how do you use astrology to tap into spirit? I use it with this intention, with every reading, with every session, and even my own personal use, as what is the divine trying to say about this moment? Astrology really is a deep contemplation of the moment, and it can be any particular moment, which is really the same moment but we won't get into that just yet, but it can be the reflection of the moment of your birth. It can be a reflection of literally right now. And you can kind of see even how right now might echo in relation to another moment, like your birth. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of these different echoes and listening to the sounds of them, you can see what is most appropriate for the moment that you're in. Mm. And to, you know, the, the classic vision of this is like, which God do I propitiate? Which God do I kind of notify or appeal to in terms of understanding what I must do in this moment? Now, we don't have that same, most of us, that same religious sensibility. So I think it's not propitiate as like, well, what do I sacrifice? What do I, what prayers, what hymns do I say? But, you know, we've gone through different turns of this. And right now, especially with the advent of something called psychological astrology became like, what, what ways do I change my mindset or better understand the positioning of my mind to better embrace either the moment of my birth or the moment that I'm in? I'm a little more spiritual than that, and I don't think it's just tied, on, tied up in terms of one's psychology. I think it is, for instance, to be aware of the energy of the moment, whether you want to envision that as a god, which is fine for me, or you want to envision that as some part of your psyche. And I know I said that with some measure of sarcasm because I do have some trouble with archetypal astrology um, and psychological astrology. And, I'll tell you, and, and I'm claiming it as my own personal problem. I'm not saying that it's an inherent problem and should be excised from the field, but here's my issue. My issue, especially coming from my background in atheism, right? Once I decided that I was at peace with a theistic world, meaning that I had come from the wilderness of atheism to kind of embrace that the, the realm of gods, right? Then I realized I couldn't be half-assed about it and realized that, you know, if you're going to believe in gods, believe in gods, right? Which is to say, um, when you make everything archetypal and just in your unconscious, what you're kind of saying some, on some level is still atheistic. You're, you're denying the gods, Right? It's like, it's all just in me. It's just a reflection of my consciousness. Eshu is just a reflection of my consciousness. 
no, not recognizing that these are things that may be much larger than your consciousness, that are older than your consciousness. And, and seeing either that it's in unity in relation to your consciousness or greater than your consciousness. You can take your pick, but to just say that's an extension of you, I think is Western arrogance. So that's my issue with it. Um, so anyway, one example I might give of that is to say that you're dealing with Mars opposite to your moon, meaning transiting Mars. Mars in the sky right now is opposite to your moon, which might deal with a high level of feeling anxious, a need for action. And if you're frustrated and you don't have outlets for action, that may come out in very sharp ways where you get into arguments in social media or with your partner. So you're dealing with a Mars moment. So what do you do? You have to find a way to propitiate Mars, which is not like, let me go get this goat. It's not going to be like actually sacrificing a goat as much as, okay, how can I honor Mars with some means of physical expression of energy that releases what I'm feeling, this pent up? You know, maybe you might need to go hit a bag, right? Or jump some rope. Or maybe you need to kind of, you know, build up your courage and say to your boss, like, yeah, but I want my race. Right? You need to have some measure of daring, some measure of action. And when you're not honoring that action, then you feel it as pent up energy that has nowhere to go and you suffer. So some part of astrology is to alleviate your suffering by virtue of your awareness. So it helps you and contemplate what's happening right now so that you know the best course of action for you to take to move you forward in a way that aligns with how you want to move in a positive way. Correct. So there are two words that you, or there are two words that kind of sum up. One of them you use was contemplate and the other word is consider. Mm -hmm. Consider comes from the root con, it's Latin for with, and sidere, which means star. So consider, considere means to think with your stars. Hmm. Contemplate, contemplatus, right, is related to with, same con, right, with temple, right? So it's to sit in your temple mm -hmm. or to be at the temple. So to mm -hmm. contemplate is to be in the temple of your consciousness and your mind in order to think about what's happening in your environment and around you. Hmm. Considere is the same principle, to think with your stars. Okay. So... It is like the, the key goal of astrology is to get you to consider. Wow, you're, you're dropping some serious knowledge today. Yes. <laughs> I hope, okay, I good. I take note on that, considering <laughs> contemplate. Okay, so did you have another question? No, go ahead. Um, I was gonna say, if we can move into, take us through what happens when somebody gets a chart done, or could we even do an example maybe? Could we? Do that? Is that something? Is that possible? Sure. We could make up a, a chart or I can pick a chart. Or I can um, give you a date. Well, let's pick someone. I'll pick someone. What's today? Today. April 25th. Mm -hmm. uh, hold on. I was going to look up Stevie Wonder, but I'm going to pick another Taurus because Taurus season. So I'm going to pick a Taurus because I think Taurus is one of the more radical signs of the, of the Zodiac. I know that a lot of people are like surprised when I hear that, when I say that. So I'm going to talk about a notable Taurus 
that we can look at. And I'm gonna share the screen and I know our viewers cannot see the screen, but I'm looking at the chart of Malcolm X. Mm. So Malcolm X is born May 19th, 1925. We believe from obtaining a birth certificate where it's not clear whether it's PM or AM. So they always had these weird ticks and checks um, on various birth certificates. Um, so it's a question whether he was born PM, but most astrologers now have settled on 1025 PM, born in Omaha, Nebraska. And he is um, what we call Capricorn rising, meaning that the sign of Capricorn was coming above the horizon when he was born. And he has a moon in Aries at 29 degrees, which means it's at the last degree before the moon would have shifted into Taurus. And he's born at 28 degrees and 37 minutes of, of Taurus, which means like he basically had a day and a half before the sun would have gone into Gemini. And he has a Jupiter in Capricorn. So if Malcolm X, Dave Malcolm X, El Haj Malik Al Shabazz, had come to get a consultation, what we would have done is one, we would have asked, you know, on a, a form that people fill out when they book a session with me uh, for his birth date, birth time, um, birth date with the year, birth time, a.m. or p.m., and then the place where he was born. And that is to be able to construct accurately where, where he was, you know, what was coming up above the horizon when he was born and also where the moon is and all these, you know, to be able to do his chart accurately. So then the idea would be to confirm that in the session, even though he may have written it just to make sure, because sometimes, and I have seen this, people write the wrong thing or, you know, I may have transposed the information wrong and wasn't paying attention. So it's always good to kind of verify. And then we start talking and I explain what the sun means here. And then I would talk about his sun, his moon and his rising sign. And I'll come back to that. Um, meaning that I'll bookmark what those things kind of can mean. And then how those three things can synthesize related to his life purpose. And then we can evaluate once he says like, well, I'm a truck driver, um, which I'm sure Malcolm wouldn't have said because he was never a truck driver to my knowledge. Um, we, we could talk about how he's in alignment with that sense of purpose and whether he's not. Now, if he's not, which does happen sometimes with some clients, we could talk about why and what I see in this chart and what might be the inhibition and what might be the particular issues related to that. Mm -hmm. And then we would start to unpack that. Then, and that usually is in the first, in an hour-long session, which is what I usually recommend for all clients getting their first session with me. Afterwards, they can get maybe even 30-minute sessions unless they kind of have longer check-ins and want to do more. Um, in that first, within that hour, the first 20 minutes is talking about what I just mentioned, the sun, moon, rising, and then, you know, getting more to the life purpose. Then the remainder of the session is like, okay, what are you dealing with over the next couple of years? Let's say over the next, you know, you know, two to five years, you know, in terms of more big, big picture stuff. And depending on where they are, like if they're at their Saturn return, 
I might be able to talk about what are some things and issues that you may be dealing with over the next seven years. Then the narrow, the focus narrows, and then I focus more on that particular year of life. So for instance, if I were talking to Malcolm, I might talk to him about his 39th year of life, which would be more the fourth house here, what we, you know, related to one particular technique I use called perfection. So he might be dealing with his 39th year of life, which is when he died. Now, let me just say this. Would I have been talking to Malcolm about his death? I don't talk about, you know, predicting people's death. People are always concerned when they go to a Western astrologer that, oh, he's going to tell me or she's going to tell me when I I'm going to die. That is not the practice of most Western astrologers. Now, I will say, and I, you know, and I'll tell you a little bit why in a second, but um, that, that may be the practice of some Eastern astrologers. Like if you go to an Indian or Vedic astrologer, they may say to you, oh, then I see, madam, you're dying maybe around 67, right? They'll tell you the year. That's part of their culture and the expectation that that culture has um, in relation to it. Now, whether it's accurate or not, that's a different thing. <laughs> um, they're not always accurate. The other thing to know is that they may also talk about how you might die. So again, if you're consumed with like how I will die, blah, 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 you can take a risk and get that information. But I, as an astrologer, as a Western astrologer, am more concerned with how you're going to live. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's not, and then we even take, you know, if we get a certification, which I have, through at least two organizations, we even take a vow not to just talk about these particular things that way, where I won't kind of go into like, oh, well, you know, you want to be careful when you, you get to 60. Or, you know, like, cancer runs in your family? Mm. You know, and why I say that mm. um, is not that we can't tell you the hard stuff. But I also have a very pragmatic notion and approach to astrology, which is you've come to me for clarity on the moment. If I were to say to you, you know, well, you might develop cancer and die at 67 with that level of certainty, that actually could create more anxiety in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm getting close to the 67. Here I am at 65. You know, I haven't done this, this, that. And then you get to 67. And then, my God, you get to 68. <laughs> and, you've, <laughs> and you've wasted years, time, <laughs> thinking like, oh, well, that astrologer said I was going to die. Right. And I think it's much more useful to be useful and to talk about things. So I did go to an astrologer in, in India who told me, I don't even remember when he told me um, when I was going to die. Because I was like, literally, okay, that could be true, could not be true. But I'll never forget how he told me I would die. So let me just kind of recount for our listeners. Mm -hmm. um, he said, I see you dying um, by some kind of bite. And I looked at him, I, I know I squinted and probably said, what kind of bite? He said, I, it could be like a snake bite or like... Um, you know, a scorpion bite or, you know, a dog bite, or it could even be a mosquito bite. And I just said, okay. But in my head, because I need to be polite, I was like, that has to be the most useless information I've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> because 
I have no idea what to do with that. I don't even know why you would think that would be useful. <laughs> but okay. A mosquito bite, right? <laughs> a mosquito bite. You know, it could be a mosquito that takes you out. So I'm like, okay. So, I mean. Gotta go, gotta go. <laughs> I don't, now, <laughs> years later, someone could be listening to this podcast and like, Sam died from malaria, okay? Most <laughs> likely, he died from a mosquito bite, okay? So, yeah, that astrologer was exactly right. But I can't live my life like that. Right, right. Because all he could tell me, tell me was like, it's a bite. Well, what? So I, I don't think we need to get into that as much. I think what we need to pay attention to is like, what are our issues now in life? So one of the things that's very powerful about Malcolm's chart, you know, is that, yes, he was a son in Taurus. But I pay a lot of attention to the Jupiter in his first house and Jupiter being square to his moon and to um, his midheaven. And Jupiter is very interesting in his chart. He's actually going, he's in a Jupiter return. Like, okay, he's passed, but he's in a, a window of dealing with his Jupiter return. This would have been, oh, I want to say, because Malcolm would have been 85, right? Is that right? Yeah. No, um, no he would have been 75? 95. 95? Yes. Okay, thank you. Coming That's up better. on he would have been, so he would have been going on his eighth Jupiter return, right? Mm-hmm. Now, m- most of us don't necessarily live that long. But if he had lived that long, I mean, it would have been a different notion for him. But what's significant is that Malcolm X found the nation of Islam at his second Jupiter return. And Jupiter deals with the idea of expansion, growth, spirituality in india he is called the guru so it is dealing with how we experience the larger path of understanding and consciousness the larger path of like teaching and so it's in his first house so he was almost born to be a teacher and to kind of expand and grow boundaries And with this square to his moon, he was someone who, especially in his youth, which he freely admits, you know, prone to excesses. But he really kind of was like looking for the teacher. And with a Jupiter and Capricorn, a sign of Saturn, he was dealing with the legacy of how to expand and grow. Now, this is significant because you say, like, what legacy? Well, Malcolm X wasn't the first black nationalist in his family. He actually was the second. His parents were both black nationalists and he actually used to travel with them in terms of giving their speech, you know, speaking engagements, mainly his father. Now, the thing is when his father was killed by white folk, his mother saddled with like suddenly a family by herself couldn't necessarily handle the pressure and had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. And from there, that's how, Malcolm X went more toward a life of crime and ended up in prison. And it was in prison at his second Jupiter return that he found his guru, his teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Now that's significant because Jupiter is also, you know, square to his midheaven, his moon. And what we say square is a dynamic tension, 90 degrees in terms of a planetary perspective. And what I argue is that Malcolm X 
one of his key dimensions and purposes in life was to become the teacher he was meant to be, but he didn't necessarily have the full confidence to be that. So he felt like he needed a father figure or some kind of figure who could hold the space for that until at such point he was ready, which really came at his third Jupiter return, roughly around 35 and 36, when he broke with the nation of Islam. Of course, breaking with the nation of Islam, having Mars opposite to Pluto, he was always bound to be somewhat of a divisive figure and a kind of like challenge. And by virtue of being who he was and rallying up, you know, those who were formerly his allies, they went against him, became his open enemies and killed him with the help of the U.S. government. So this is kind of the manifestation. But did he fulfill his purpose? Yes. At some point, roughly around 35, 36, you know, Malcolm X had his own The Last Dragon moment where like, I am the master, right? Rather than like being beholden to someone else as the master, which in this case was the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And he wasn't the master over people, right? But he was the master of, you know, himself in his own position of understanding. And he brought in his own understanding of Islam. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, another aspect of, you know, where he kind of brought to life this Jupiter. And what I'm pointing to are these different sectors of the chart, which we call houses, for which there are 12. And Jupiter being in his first house means in the house of the self-identity and the projection of who you are. And it's also kind of like we would say um, the mast of the ship where we also have like the steering. So that's an example. And then the other part of the reading would be also focused on what's happening like during his 39th year of life. And then I also do like a six month analysis, like what are some things to pay attention during that six month. So what I might have said, you know, at that particular point when he was killed in the Audubon ballroom or in you know, February, obviously I wouldn't have not necessarily predicted his death, but there probably were strong indicators related to danger in his chart and his life. Mm -hmm. So I might have said like, you know, don't go out the house, but I would like, you know, take extra precautions, you know, um, in terms of like what you may do during that particular time. Okay. okay. Hmm. So I wonder, is there a way we could share that chart so people could see what- Sure, I could send it to you and then you could put it up, you know, I could send it to you as a PDF or a JPEG, whichever is your preference, you tell me which. Okay. And I'll send it to you. And then that way it can be available to your viewers if there's somewhere you can post it. Okay. All right. So we'll do that. So people okay. can see because it's a lot of stuff going on. And tell me, you, why don't I do it right now? And you tell me, and I'll do like a, a beginner's wheel so people can look at it with a legend. Thank which you. Which do you think, of, of course, which would that be more useful? Huh? That went over, some of it went over my head. Oh, okay. And I think there will be other people that it will go over their head. Uh, I don't think well, help me out for a second, but let me just do one thing at a time. Which would be more helpful, a JPEG or a PDF? PDF. Okay. All right, so I'll just make it right now and a half, and then I'll send it to you later. I won't distract myself with it. Okay. Um, so Glenda, tell me something. 
what do you remember going over your head? That's always interesting to me because that helps me refine how to talk about astrology in ways that being are more accessible. Able, being able to understand like what I was seeing, trying to oh. my memory, like what is this? I could recognize some of the symbols, like the, the thing that looks like a six and a six, oh, that's cancer, or like just, so a ledger itself would be. That, that's a, yeah, there's a legend that I send, like when you have a consultation with me, mm -hmm. it comes with a legend. I okay. didn't use it for that one because I was just, I was talking about it, but um, the PDF that I'll be sending actually has a legend. A legend. So the other thing. That will have like, you know, those particular things. What are some other things? The other thing, um, when you talked about even Jupiter return, I, I don't know what that means. Oh, well, I talked about that earlier at, with the Saturn, same as the Saturn. So it means Jupiter coming back to its original position as it was when you were born. Right. So Jupiter came back to that same degree, that same sign as when he was born. And it does that every 12 years. So it did it when he was 12. Then it came back around between 23 and 24. Then it happened to 35 and 36. And he didn't get to his fourth Jupiter return. Neither did, neither did uh, Martin Luther King Jr. They both died at 39. So I didn't have the information that it was 12. So Right. Well, on some level, I was like, well, you don't necessarily need that. But it's like more so Jupiter return. I could have explained and probably would have in the session. It just okay. means that Jupiter comes back to its original position as it was when you were born. See, and I, I got that part. I just didn't know, like, so when does it come back? Like, I see. You know, just, but. Um, That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, they're just, I understand a little more now, a lot more now than I did um, before. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's a large building. So there's mm -hmm. always more to learn. The key thing is I, I don't want it to be, so obscure, so esoteric that it goes, so much goes over people's heads. I try to keep the astrology somewhat to the minimum, but I also like to talk about some of the astrology so people know that it's something that they can understand. Because one, one way in which astrology is different from the other mantic mm -hmm. arts or divinatory arts is that it tries to wed, weds itself to, to reason. So it's more so where you can reason through using the idea of math, right, and almost mathematics, like even divine mathematics, um, ways in which we can access intuition and higher states of consciousness. Mm. So we use the idea of Jupiter in relation to configurations of other planets as a way to contemplate and consider what they might mean in a life. Mm. It seems to me a good merging of science and spirit. Yes. Although I'm resistant to the idea, resistant to the idea of calling it science, um, because it doesn't meet the requirements of replicability of modern science. But in the classical notion of science, scientia, knowledge, it does. Right. Or even rationality in, right? Because science can be, when you talk about math, you know, the, there, 2,100 and right in the degrees and mm -hmm. like 90 degrees and it, all of these things are precise. That's true. So there is, in my mind, that means there's a science to it. Right. right. Or there, there is like science is technique, a measure of skill. 
mm-hmm. and specificity. Um, and yeah, I could say science in the sense of the application of the principles of science. And, but, you know, but one of the sad things about the modern era is that science has robbed the world of what science was, which was knowledge and which was the application of specificity and art mm-hmm. and um, mathematics, all these things as could be applied to so many things that are no longer seen as scientific, you know, alchemy, you know, all these other different aspects of it. But yes. So I would agree with you in that sense. I'm just careful about my use of that word from knowing my humanist and skeptical quote unquote friends and background. Well, Mm -hmm. we have to define our reality for ourselves, right? That's true. That's part of critical thinking. um, And like, so, uh, in in my in my discipline, they like to talk about evidence based medicine, and what does evidence based medicine say about this? And for me, evidence based medicine is if you go and do something and you get a result, that's your evidence, right, for yourself, and it doesn't have to apply to other people. You're living that life, and you have to make it work for you. Um, right, and that's the way I choose to approach it, and it works for me. So. And yeah, so there's not enough room given, enough leverage given to the experiential, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is central to the experience of being human. Mm -hmm. But people, when when they talk about evidence-based research or evidence-based this, they're talking about the statistical means of it, and that becomes like evidence, which, you know, I think that's kind of like the present moment, which, again, like all different aspects of science will have its own limits. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Sounds good. Um, okay. Anything else you want to share that you think is important to? Mm, no, I mean, other than if people want to get a consultation with me, then they can find me at unlockastrology.com or if they want to contact me beforehand or have a question or a quip or like they don't like something I said, they can write me at unlockastrology at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other thing, um, again, if they want to book a session, it's all that. I'm taking a hiatus off of Facebook and Twitter, so I'm not as active for the month of Ramadan um, for the next now 28 days. Mm-hmm. Um, but my accounts are SF Reynolds, um, S as in Sam, F as in Fred Reynolds on Twitter and Instagram. So if they want to kind of check me out there, I'm active. And, and I, I have had a session with him and it was wonderful. I, I learned a lot of interesting information that I have been continuously contemplating and considering <laughs> since that time. Uh, and it is uh, moving me forward. So um, I'm very wonderful for that. And I certainly recommend people uh, take advantage of the opportunity to uh, understand themselves better through this um, field of astrology, so. And I'm looking forward to my um, having mine done. I'm oh, good! I can't wait. Forward to that. I'm looking forward to that, Glenda. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So we're gonna go ahead and wrap up, and we thank you for your time and energy, and for enlightening us and giving us a lot, a lot of great things to think about. And we'll continue moving forward. Um, thank you to our listeners for always supporting us and continuing to 
uh, give us insightful questions and things to think about and being on this journey of critical thinking with us. Um, continue to uh, expand your walk with spirit and tap into all the different dimensions that spirit comprises. So we hope this has been inspiring and edifying to you and we will continue doing what we do in our upcoming uh, sessions. So with that, we'll sign off. We'll say thanks again and uh, continue with your uh, observation of Ramadan. We wish you uh, good, 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 uh, good energy going through that. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Inshallah, thank you. Thank you for having me, both of you. Yeah. So we'll see you all next time on Tapping in the Spirit. Peace. Yeah, talking about spirit. So in closing, we'd like to encourage you to embrace the concept of change and learning something new. Continue to evolve, continue to transform, continue to thrive and find your own personal path to tapping into spirit. And I was obviously too blind and probably too weak to see who was responsible for my losing streak.